Welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. I'm your host, Bruce Bratley, founder of recycling company First Mile. On this show, we meet and learn from the climate heroes who are building solutions right now to tackle climate change. There's a growing movement calling for systemic change to tackle the climate crisis and social inequalities. Some argue, and I'd include myself in this, that business, when done right, is a powerful agent for change to tackle both the climate crisis and social justice. Today's guest, James Perry, is co-founder of Cook, one of the UK's first B corporations, and he's an impact investment pioneer running an impact fund called Snowball. James also sits on the board of B Lab and was instrumental in bringing the B Corp movement to the UK, where we now have approaching 2,000 B corporations. James, it's a huge pleasure to have you on First Miles Climate Heroes, and welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Brilliant. So, um, James, I want to get straight into a lot of people sort of start down their environmental journey with uh, thinking they need to change their own behavior, buying an electric car eating less meat, whatever it is, which is obviously important, but actually increasingly people are realizing that we need systemic change to actually make a, a big enough impact um, on, the, on the climate crisis and, and social justice. And you explain this around business for good, both in terms of demanding, creating demand, like you've done with Cook and other B corporations with businesses that are putting purpose with profit, but also your work with Snowball, which is uh, providing a supply of impact capital into the system as well. So you're sort of working on both sides of that. Can you give us an explanation of um, why you think the current system is broken and how you think businesses which are in the current system can be part of the solution? Well, look, I think that we have a big problem, uh, which is increasingly becoming apparent to most people. And the problem is that our economic system uh, has been designed to prioritise the creation of financial capital, profit, at the expense of natural capital and social capital. So planetary resources, natural capital and people, you know, social capital are seen as inputs in the creation, in value creation. And value is defined as financial value. So it's not surprising. And then we sort of engage in a race of competition. So we consume those resources as fast as we possibly can. And if we're not consuming them fast enough, then somebody else is consuming them faster and they'll get the investment capital, which means we lose. So we've created this kind of mutually assured destruction where, you know, we've tasked business with maximizing profits, uh, but we've not properly thought through the implications for people and planet. And therefore, it's not surprising, given the enormous power that business has. It's not surprising that we have a planetary, environmental, biodiversity, climate crisis, and we also have a social crisis or set of social crises. So that's the problem, which is sort of effectively we have, you know, since the sort of industrial revolution been treating nature as a huge externality where we consume it and pump hazardous materials into it and, and also exploiting human capital across the globe. What's the solution and how can businesses be part of that solution. Yeah, and I think it is. it did start with the Industrial Revolution, but actually there is a very specific and clear intellectual underpinning of the problem, which came out of the Chicago School of Economics in the 1960s and 1970s, which essentially says that profits are a proxy for social progress. So as long as wealth is increasing and profits are increasing, 
then society will progress. As the tide comes in, all the boats rise. And that idea is essentially the idea that became like a kind of Jedi mind trick, like a kind of monoculture, intellectual monoculture that rules the global economy. So I think the solution is, uh, well, the first part of the solution, you know, there's, there's many parts of the solution, but the first and sort of fundamental part of the solution is to flick that switch, to go upriver and to say, that's the wrong operating system for a global economy. We need to take that, we need to uninstall that, and we need to install a better idea. And so to answer your question, I think the better idea is the idea of business creating value for everybody, not value for shareholders exclusively. So value for everybody means people, planet, and profit and shareholders. So that means pr protecting and respecting the natural world and natural capital, as well as people and communities with social capital, um, as well as rep rec recognizing that we do need a certain level of prosperity to be able to put food on our tables and, and live the lives that we want to live. And at the very macro level, I mean, we talk about that in terms of, um, you know, prosperity in terms of GDP, gross domestic product, and, and you know, pretty much every nation in, in the world is talking about whether their GDP is increasing and by how much. Can we still en encapsulate people, profit and planet within GDP or do we need a new macro measurement of wealth, which includes the sort of social and environmental wealth? Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of work been done by many people around things like well-being as a concept. So the well-being economy, whereby um, we don't think of uh, our success through purely material means, but we think about how how much well-being we're promoting in society. Which, of course, um, if you if you're living in a in an ecosystem that's collapsing around your ears, and you're living in a deeply in unequal society with collapsing public services. That is detrimental to well-being, but we don't measure any of that. We measure whether our GDP has gone up. So we're measuring the wrong things. And is that um, and your work with B Labs and the B Corporation movement, and and more recently with um, Impact Investing, is that the route to addressing these things, or do we need to have a sort of much wider change of legislation and and sort of enforcement before we can really sort of start to build societies that don't just pursue profit. Yeah, so the role of the kind of B corporation movement and the impact investment the authentic impact investment movement is to try and demonstrate that you can install a new idea into business or a different idea into business um, and investment and that it works um, and it creates successful businesses and successful investments which uh, can do the job that businesses and investments have to do. Um, and I think broadly uh, that case is that there's enough body of evidence built that that does work. The trouble is that, that, that we work within a system that's been designed. You know, there's no such thing as a free market. We all know that. You know, markets are designed uh, by policymakers and they're an aggregation of different policies and levers and so on, you know. We have competition law, we have tariffs, we have taxation rates and all the rest of it, which, which create a set of incentives and regulations. So the problem we've got is that for the last 50 years, those regulations and incentives and taxes and the rest of it have been designed around this idea that their job is to promote profits because profit promotion is what you do if you want to promote social progress. People... They're not bad people. They just believed this stuff. And I mean, I think if Milton Friedman was was writing now, then he would look at the evidence and maybe come up with a different conclusion. 
but the trouble is he's not around and people just sort of follow him blindly. It doesn't work. The evidence says we're creating a social and environmental catastrophe and we need to change course. So what that means is we need a new idea from which to pin our policy making so that it's not all driven by this belief, this kind of blind belief that promotion of profit will solve all our problems because it won't. And that's very interesting there that you put the word authentic in front of impact investment. I mean, there's there's a lot of funds around now talking about impact investing. Is this a is this a, a new uh, additional word that you've put there because you think some of the it, it would be implied that some of the impact investing maybe isn't as uh, impactful and uh, transparent as it might be, or have I picked up the wrong end of the stick there? Well, I mean, there is actually a, a definition of impact investing, which is about measurable and intentional. The problem is that no one's policing that. So, you know, we all know that if you look at um, an oil company's Twitter feed, you'd think that they were a renewable energy company. You know, you, you really would have no idea that yeah. they were extracting and converting fossil fuels because they don't talk about that. They talk about the wind farm they've just built. They don't talk about the fact they're underinvesting in renewable energy, and they're investing more than they said they would in more fossil fuel extraction. They don't talk about that. So yes, and, and they have very substantial marketing budgets. You know, they advertise a lot in the media. The media, therefore, have problem, you know, vested interests in not biting the hand that feeds them and so on and so forth. We know this stuff. Yeah. So therefore, authenticity is kind of hard to come by. Uh, trust is quite difficult. You know, discernment is very important. What, who do I trust? Who do I believe? Because you know, I, for one, don't believe the Twitter feeds of fossil fuel companies. And is that what snow, Snowball, uh, your impact investment business is trying to do? Is it trying to get right under the skin of it and, and, and provide authentic impact investment? And how does, how does that work? How do you know that you're, how do you measure the success of what you're doing at Snowball? Yeah, so the B Corp movement is doing a good job of, of like, if you think of a market, it's got two sides, buyers and sellers, issuers and investors. So on the issuer side, of a capital market, you've got companies. So what we're trying to demonstrate with the B Corp movement is that companies can be a force for good and can operate this system which values all the capitals, not just financial capital. But you need to do the same thing on the investor side, on the other side of the market. So that's really what Snowball is is seeking to do. And you know the way that global capital is, and I've all sort of learned this by by just looking at it and figuring it out, but Global capital is operated through sort of modern portfolio theory where there are different asset classes and any portfolio investor, any large investor will invest across asset classes with a diversified set of assets because it diversifies the risk. So what Snowball is doing is essentially saying in every single asset class, private equity, real assets, fixed income, public equity, you can set out to have a positive social or environmental impact. And it's investing in those things. So, you know, we talk about uh, pricing in future risk and we also talk about internalizing the externalities. So we're looking to get to for investments which have a net positive benefit. So as you'd expect, it's got a lot of things like renewable energy because you can make money and invest in renewable energy, which is a good thing, but lots of other sorts of things as well. And there doesn't seem to be a shortage of uh, businesses wanting to operate with for purpose and profits and there's there's a long list of people signing up and a fantastic growing number of b corporations is there a shortage of capital in the marketplace to get behind impactful investments well i think that i would divide it into two different i'd answer that question in two different ways i think on one side you have 
effectively market-seeking investors who recognize that if you invest in a new technology that's going to have a really bright future driven by really great entrepreneurs, you can make amazing returns. And that's very true in the socially and environmentally beneficial space, right? Because good quality entrepreneurs want to use business as a force for good. They're finding fantastic solutions using technology, and they're going to make a lot of money. So that's a perfectly legitimate investment for anybody. You don't have to be an impact investor to make that investment. So there's no, if you like, uh, compromise on returns. And then there's the other kinds of investments, which are much more challenging. So you know, try investing in a place which is in climate distress in you know, sub-Saharan Africa uh, with an eviscerated economy, which is shut out from Western markets. And you make an investment there in order to provide primary capital to people so that they can generate some wealth locally. You're going to be taking a lot of different risks. And can you make a market rate return there without being effectively a usurer? Because the cost of that capital, well, the risk associated with that capital is pretty high. So the cost of it has to be so high that it becomes, you know, pretty, pretty tasteless from a kind of um, ethics point of view to lend or invest money at those kinds of rates. So do you need a concessionary return in those kinds of environments? Yes, you probably do. And, you know, so it's not, it's again, like all things in life, it's, it's not one or the other, it's both at the same time. First Mile is the UK's leading waste management service. We help over 30,000 businesses reduce their carbon impact with our award-winning range of recycling solutions. Go to our website, which is thefirstmile.co.uk to get started today. If you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday. James, I'm conscious that we went straight into sort of this sort of bigger issues, which I was keen, keen to do, um, and you're super knowledgeable in these areas. How on earth did you get involved in, you know, Cook, huge business now, and you grew it, uh, I think it's 100 million business now, a business for good, and you were instrumental in bringing B Corp to these shores. So could you tell us a little bit about that and, and why you got involved in the B Corp movement and why you wanted to build a, a business with purpose? Yeah, so... It came from, I, I trained at Cadbury Limited, actually, and um, it was a great Quaker chocolate company, which underwent a program called Managing for Shareholder Value, which said, just shove more chocolate down more people's necks more quickly, because that's how you make more money. And I sort of didn't really think that was a great idea. And so I had this big problem around kind of the design of our economic system. And when we were growing Cook, we needed venture capital. So I spoke to venture capital funds. And essentially got told that, you know, if we took their money, our job would be to make as much money as quickly as possible and then sell the company. And we didn't want to do that because we always felt that the role of business was to be effectively to be a good citizen, you know, to be a good employer, to be a good member of community and to be welcome and to provide good products that were valuable and valued and to kind of leave society stronger than we found it, really. So that's just a different idea. So talk. People would say to us that we were we were wrong. You know, I mean, I had many conversations with venture capital funds that said, no, no, you, you don't understand. That's not how it works. And I was like, well, who who is the, who decided it works? <laughs> I don't agree with you. And I had this weird moment where I was like, there's a quote that says, um, I said to the world that they were wrong and they said that I was wrong. And damn them, they outvoted me. And I sort of, we, you know, we found ourselves alone and it's a very difficult position to be. So we went on a sort of, search to find people who agreed with us and found ourselves in San Francisco in 2010 
and listen to Jayco and Gilbert, one of the co-founders of the B Corp movement, talking about this thing he just invented called a B Corp and why. And immediately it was like ka-ching, you know, it was like a, a eureka moment. We we're like, we're a B Corp. And we came back from California and said, we're a B Corp. And everyone was like, what's a B Corp? And, uh, and so then we, it, you know, we, we became a B Corp. And then as part of that, got to know the people behind it. And they said, look, you know, do you want to help us get it going in the UK? And, um, and that's what we did. And, you know, it, it was, but it was relatively easy for me. Okay. Because the thing is that um, my brother, Ed started Cook. By then, my sister and my brother were running it. And I'd become non-exec as a sort of chair character, which meant that I had a bit more license and time to go off on these flights of fancy and wild goose chases. So I was the guy that found myself in San Francisco and they gave me that license and they stay sort of, they, they, they're the ones that have really been uh, responsible for growing Cook from a management point of view and they've done an amazing job. And what was the hardest thing about bringing B Corp to the UK? Was it sort of people just didn't get it or legislation or... I, so I, I was very fortunate because I realised I couldn't do it on my own. And generally, I think in life, it's pretty, it's probably best not to ever try to do too much on your own. And I managed to find somebody called Charmian Love, who was working with John Elkington. And John, John was the guy that came up with the triple bottom line language. And so Shah and I, Shah agreed to join me to help me. So Shah and I did it together. And we spent a year explaining to people what a B Corp was. And, you know, we really had to sell the whole thing from the get-go from from sort of first principles but we found we sort of knew a fair few people and we found a crowd quite quickly of people who are like yes this is what we've been waiting for and they all then had to sort of make the commitment to becoming a b corp which i'm sure your listeners will who, who've got direct experience will know this is not a particularly pleasant experience and you know we had to get 50 or 60 in fact it was 62 companies who, who certified at our launch to all do it, knowing that kind of no one had heard of it, it wasn't a thing, they needed to do it in order to make it a thing. But that meant they were quite committed. And were those, uh, did, you, did B Labs and B Corp in the US go lightly on those first 62 in terms of their uh, assessments? Or was it, was it hard, hard then as it is now? Well, one of the things I like about B, B Lab is that they don't muck about. There's no compromise. They're not, they're, they're, you know, it's a not-for-profit. It's a populated by true believers doesn't mean they get everything right doesn't mean they don't sometimes get things wrong but from an authenticity and motivation point of view completely loved it and that's one of the reasons I I, I, I became committed to it because I believed it you know and uh, it doesn't mean it's faultless but it definitely means that I trust its uh, it, its understanding of what it's doing and um, so therefore when we were certifying these UK companies it was super frustrating because I was like oh come on and they were like they haven't you know they haven't got everything they need for the assessment. And this was, uh, I think, is it out of 200 you score? Yeah. 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 So I think we were 83 or something like that. Did Cook sort of smash it out of the ballpark when you when you got your first assessment? So when we got our first assessment, we scored 53. Um, and again, one of the reasons I liked it, you know, we had such a terrible score. I thought, oh, well, you know, this must be quite meaningful. And then we did a, we did a kind of uh, an analysis of all the changes we'd need to make to get to 80. And it was 200 rows on our spreadsheet. And we were like, wow. Do we really want to go through this change program to get there? And uh, and we thought, well, yeah, actually, all of these changes are making us a better business. They're all things we want to be doing and should be doing. So we did them. And we got to 80.1. So we scraped it the first time. <laughs> and then every, we've recertified, actually, every, uh, probably five times now, I think. And 
the last time we certified, we got over 100 and everybody was just delighted. So it does create that race to the top kind of virtuous cycle thing. Yeah, well, that is good that you're heading in the right direction. And you do see some uh, some some B Corps with pretty high scores in the like 120s, 130s. What's the sort of UK B Corp with the highest score, do you know? Well, I think it's easier in truth if you're a – it's, it's slightly easier for some – different kinds of companies, right? So as Cook, we have this beef that because we're blue collar, we've got a lot of blue collar workers, we're a manufacturer, you know, we, we sort of joke, it's, it's much easier for a sort of, I don't know, a professional services company with four really high, highly paid people in a small office, you know, I'm not sure that's necessarily fair or true. But I think it does definitely, it's definitely easier to really smash the ball out of the park if you're a certain kind of company. And I, yeah, it's fine. And and but in some ways, that's those are the challenges around having a scoring system like that, which is that you know it's necessarily complicated. It you know there are gating questions at the beginning: what industry are you in? How big are you? What part of the world are you in? Those sorts of things, which mean that there's many different versions of the assessment, sort of when you drill down, and it's very complex to to run. And as a result, there will be imperfections. It will be annoying. I don't get points for stuff. I think we should get points for at Cook. And we sort of just go, yeah, well, you know, that's the nature of the beast, really. Of course, it can be improved and it, it is always getting better, but it's never as good as you want it to be. You now sit on the board of B Labs. And is that is that what's the role of B Labs? Are you sitting up late at night marking the uh, exam papers? No, well, mercifully, I'm non-executive. <laughs> um, but, you know, B Lab, B Lab's role is twofold. The first one is it is the certification body. So it's the body that owns the IP effectively of what a B corporation is. It owns the B in the circle, if you like, um, and, it, and it kind of determines what that means. And then it creates the B impact assessment, which is the tool which people use to assess their companies. And then, and then it verifies people's scores. So that's one role of B Lab. And the other one is that it promotes the growth of the movement around the world through its partner organizations like B Lab UK or B Lab Europe or Sistema Bay in Latin America, uh, or B-Lab Australia, New Zealand, B-Lab Korea. Um, so yeah, that's what it does. And, you know, it's been a challenging time, actually. I've re actually recently come off the board of B-Lab, but I'm still on the board of B-Lab Europe. And it's been a challenging time because during lockdown, people were stuck at home and didn't have much to do. And one of the things they did do was fill out the B-Impact assessment. So during, during COVID, there was this massive inflection point of people submitting their applications to be a B Corp. Um, at, a, at the same time that none of the staff could work together or be in the same place, hiring was really difficult. So it hit this inflection point, which led to quite a long queue, which has been quite frustrating for people. But B Lab subsequently kind of got got itself together and, um, and is now working through that quite quickly. So you know, it is it is a it's an extraordinary thing. It's a not for profit that is also in some ways a tech business. And if it was a private organisation, it would have. 50 million dollars stuck on its balance sheet to help its growth but because it's a not-for-profit it has to kind of grow organically which is difficult when you're in an inflection point well why is it called b corp this is a, a question from one of my colleagues oh don't even so uh, no one knows so there's a <laughs> so the guy who came up with it's jay and jay if you ask jay that question he basically gives you this sort of ridiculously sort of vague answer and the i think he's he's kept it deliberately vague but yeah, is it for benefit? Is it for better? 
No one knows. Nobody knows. Perfect. Good answer. Beginning with a B. It's almost like I designed this. The Better Business Act, which um, uh, Labour are talking about now, which is this idea that we change legislation and sort of um, get mandate companies' house, I guess, that businesses in the UK have to make a return or a statement. I'm not sure how it's going to be manifested, where they have to say that they are for purpose and profit and other good things as well. Is that going to kill off B Corp in the UK? Uh, well, it came out of B Lab, so I doubt it. I mean, essentially, where it came from was this idea, you know, it's, it's Section 172 is what we call permissive. So um, it, Section 172 is the section of the 2006 Companies Act, which talks about company purpose. And essentially, it says that companies are there to promote the interests of their members um, and their members are their shareholders. And then it says, this was wording inserted by uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, it says, and they must give regard to other stakeholders. Uh, and give regard to are the kind of contentious words, because it, in, in effect, that means ignore. <laughs> um, and what, and what uh, I mean, that's, that's the broad effect of it, insofar as you look at what big capital is doing and the decisions it makes. And it's not, it's, it's, it's basically making decisions in the interest of its shareholders. Um, so what uh, the Better Business Act does is it essentially changes the wording. So it elevates the interests of the other stakeholders, so communities, workers and the environment, to rank alongside shareholders in the consideration of strategic matters relating to the business. So when, when the board meets and thinks about the business and decides on strategy and makes decisions around things like you know, share issues or buybacks or dividends, or wage increases, it's got a duty to balance the interests of all those stakeholders. And what effectively the Better Business Act is saying is it's saying it works, it makes for better businesses, it gives business a much stronger and better role in society, and it should become the norm and effectively mandated to all businesses. So you you basically change with the flick of a switch, every business in the UK has to operate like that. It doesn't kill B corporations because actually what b corporations do is it certifies whether or not you're doing it by giving you a score and putting you through an assessment so um i think in some in some ways it just enhances the role of certified b corps but either way you know b lab doesn't exist to promote the interests of b lab b lab exists to change the global economy and if the global economy is changing and b lab isn't needed then that's a good result On this show, we're building a Hall of Fame for climate heroes, and we always ask our wonderful guests to leave something in First Mile's Climate Heroes Hall of Fame. So what or who would it be? I think what I would put in the Climate Heroes Hall of Fame is all of those people who are doing amazing things without any recognition at all. I love it. Perfect. Excellent. So, James been amazing having the show and we've covered a huge amount of things so uh thank you for um staying with us what does success look like i mean could you summarize that yeah we need to replace an operating system that's killing us with a better one so success looks like we have passed the better business act in in the uk this needs to happen globally but in the uk we've passed the better business act and policymakers and and the culture understands what that means which changes how we think about regulation, how we think about all the incentives in the economy, like taxation, the fiscal incentives and so forth, so that we can really start to do something about the fact that ultimately big capital 
is feeding off people and planet, which isn't going to end well. And what's next for you on that on that journey? I mean, what are we what are we going to be uh, seeing from James next? Well, actually, I'm doing a bit more work with Cook because we're doing a bit more focused work on food and food systems because we, you know, that just the devastating effect of the food system on on us all, um, both on our, our health and, you know, you look at things like obesity and the health crisis, but you also look at, you know, farming and biodiversity and those sorts of things. So I'm just taking a bit of a closer look with the team at Cook about our role in that and how we can, you know, use Cook as a platform to support change in the food industry. So don't know where that's going to go, but just starting on that journey. And are you seeing diets change? I mean, I, I, I had a um, talked to someone the other day who had a great example of um, uh, meat. Meat. Nobody. No, it was the, at their school. Everyone hated meat-free Mondays, so they called it Tasty Tuesdays, and everyone signed up to it. So, are you finding that Tasty Tuesdays are, are starting to change the sort of profile of your menu, or is that something that you're trying to promote, or is it changing naturally? Yeah, no, definitely. So we, we've we set out intentionally to increase the proportion of what we sell, which is vegetarian or vegan. Double, It's more than doubled in the last three or four years. And that's, I mean, that's partly a market dynamic and partly due to the fact that we've been really driving it. So who knows how to attribute those two drivers? But yeah, absolutely. We're doing those kinds of things. But I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of other things to think about, like, you know, concepts like food as medicine, concepts like uh, the gut microbiome, uh, you know, we've all got a kind of pharmaceutical lab in our guts, which creates um, our, our immune system. And how is food affecting that? So there's there's a lot to think about, a lot to learn. And and the science is moving us forward pretty quickly. So, yeah, it's exciting to be part of that. Brilliant. James, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on uh, First Mile's Climate Heroes. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been great. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to First Miles Climate Heroes, where we meet incredible people making an impact to tackle climate change. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday.